All right. Good morning. It is good to see all of you. It is really good to see you. Yeah, I'm, my name's Pastor Mark, and I was asked to preach this morning uh, because you guys are installing a, a young, young man to lead this church. A couple things the elders and deacons didn't share was just how smart and knowledgeable this young man was, or how good looking. Um, I appreciate that front cover there of the bulletin. That's something else. I did not appreciate Miss Claire's joke this morning on who did the touch-ups and the airbrushing. But uh, folks, turn to Numbers, will you? Turn to the book of Numbers, 27. I want to talk about some leaders that have influenced me um, because you need to know right off the bat, I don't look to CEOs I don't look to head coaches who've led athletic teams to victories. I don't look to motivational speakers who have sold millions of dollars in seminars. I don't look to leadership like that. Uh, my leadership comes straight from Scripture, and that's who I look to, and that's who I want to present today. So before we read numbers, I'm going to ask the team up there to put up Acts 20:28. 20, I want to read this verse to you. Because this verse, I want to be uh, within the framework of our thinking. As I present today's sermon, I want you to be thinking about this. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. The church of God, it's His church, and it was obtained with his blood. There is not a spiritual leader or pastor who has ever been able to obtain the church because it's not theirs, it's God's. So please understand going into this, I know who the flock is and I know who it belongs to. So keep that in the back of your minds. But let's look at Numbers 27. I'm just going to read 12 through 23, um, starting at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the water of, excuse me, holy at the waters before their eyes. These, of course, were the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey, and he shall stand before Eleazar, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation." And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. 
Now, let's talk about Moses and Joshua. Looking to the history of Israel, folks, Scripture reveals that there has not been a prophet or leader in all respects like that of Moses. Now, that is, of course, until Jesus Christ appearing, until his presence, until his glory. Absolutely. There has never been one that came before him or after him that could ever equate to Jesus Christ. But Moses is still very unique. Now, let me explain the situation here. He is told to go up to Mount Abarim, and he is going to look from that point, like a viewpoint we see in the mountains where you pull over to take pictures, he's going to look from that point at this promised land, but that's all he's going to do. He's not entering this land. See, he and Aaron both rebelled against God at a place called Meribah, and what happened was, instead of speaking to the rock to produce water, as he quarreled with the congregation, he struck it not once, folks, but twice. And this was very uh, bad in the sight of God's eyes. This was, he was not happy with this. And so, Moses, you can go up and look, but you won't enter. But there is something to this text I want to point out. If you've lost somebody, if you have a brother or a sister in heaven, I need you to hear, you, he said, Moses, you're going to die. But how did he say it, Moses? Today, you're going to be gathered to your people. Isn't that amazing? That's the kind of hope a Christian believer has. We are gathered to our people. So when we think about this, this rebellion and his death coming, we see that he might be looking at the land as, well, we should have taken that 40 years ago, like God had promised us. I mean, this promise goes all the way back to Abraham, folks, and it's being fulfilled here. But he can only see it from afar because he will uh, face death. He will be gathered to his people. But even in this, you have to know something. Moses did not lapse into sadness. He did not lapse into any kind of self-pity. In fact, his character can be seen in verse 16. Look at that with me real quick. Verse 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Here Moses is expressing his concern that Israel have a good leader to take his place. He is identifying God here as the God of the spirits of all flesh. Now, what that means is that God is the author of life. He is the life giver. And in fact, he endows men with gifts. He endows us with gifts. But even more, he has the omniscient understanding of all that he has created, which guarantees, hear me, which guarantees the choices he makes in his wisdom are perfect. They're guaranteed because it's in his wisdom. He is the one who created. So, we can see here that he chooses Joshua to be that shepherd of his flock. It is God who selects. It is God who raises up. It is God who qualifies people for the arduous duty of ministry. That's why today's sermon is titled, Shepherding God's Flock. Now, what is moving about this for me <clears throat> is Moses' Moses's concern for the right shepherd can be seen in Jesus' compassion for the people. In Matthew 9.36 Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
like sheep without a shepherd. Look at verse 17 in our text, guys. The last part, he said, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. There was a great concern here. See, Moses desired that this new leader have that same concern. I want you to be just as concerned about the well-being and about the welfare of this nation as I am. He wanted the best for him. He did. And this care stemmed from a shepherd's heart. You have to remember something. Moses was in the Midian wilderness shepherding for 40 years in preparation. God was equipping this man to encounter Pharaoh, to lead his people out of Egypt, and to be their leader in the wilderness. He was equipping him. So it was a shepherding job that brought him to this. That's what God was using. Because not only would he shepherd sheep in the Midian desert, but boy, oh boy, would he shepherd a great flock in that wilderness. And he did. Very unique. So, now we're looking at a man named Joshua, but we're looking at him through a human lens for a sec. We can see that he had been prepared for this role. He was Moses' assistant, right? And all through the experience that he, he encountered in this great journey, we can see that in the battles. And like I said, in his assistance to Moses, where he traveled with him, walked with him, entered the tent of meeting with him. However, we have to understand that there is a very divine point of view here. Let's remove the human lens for a second. The divine point of view is that the Lord Himself was orchestrating every single one of these experiences to equip and prepare Joshua. That's what was happening. Because the Lord's response was immediate. When God said, who shall we? I mean, Moses, when Moses asked God who we're going to get to lead, God's, God's message, he was very immediate in it. He said, take Joshua, this man whom is the Spirit. The qualities and the capabilities the people would observe ultimately were coming from God. He was the ideal successor to Moses. And this was God's orchestration. This was his plan. So his appointment as leader or shepherd would need to be public. As Moses was about to pass on, and be gathered to his people, it would need to be public so that the community of people would know that Joshua, uh, Joshua was entitled to the same respect as Moses being appointed by God and even having some of Moses' authority, not all, some of his authority uh, uh, passed on to him. See, Moses would lay hands on him in this commission. It was a commission happening. He'd lay hands on him, and the priest Eleazar would be a part of this ceremony. And this is cool because it would symbolize the relationship that both the priest Eleazar and Joshua would have throughout his ministry. See, Joshua would not, would not speak face-to-face with God like Moses. Again, Moses was unique. He was very unique. He would not speak face-to-face to God. Instead, Joshua would hear from Eleazar the priest, and uh, God would reveal his will to Eliezer. And this, of course, was through what we call the Urim. Now let me explain this. Um, the Urim was a piece. It was a part of a priest's equipment, if you will. Um, it could have easily been, uh, sometimes you'll hear the Urim and the Thummim together in Scripture. It could have been a part of the breastplate. 
It could have been a part of the ephod, the ephod, if you want to pronounce it that way. Um, They could have actually carried it. But we are unsure of the placement of this item. We just don't know exactly where it was. But we can tell you that the Urim would reveal the will to the priest. Who would in turn speak this will, these things to Joshua. And then Joshua would carry out these instructions just as Moses was carrying out the instructions to install Joshua as the new leader of Israel. So all of this, all of this was to install this leader to shepherd God's flock as they took possession and conquered the land that was promised to them all the way back to Abraham. Here it would be fulfilled, but it would not be led by Moses, it would be led by Joshua. So the installation was for God's purposes. It was for God's purposes and under his authority. So ladies and gentlemen, Joshua would shepherd God's flock. And since we've been in the book of Joshua, and he's a character that I really would like to imitate, this is one I wanted to talk about. But we also have Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Uh, Everybody turn to 2 Timothy, if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read five verses from this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, let's talk about Paul and Timothy for a second. Similarly, Timothy played a key role as he carried out Paul's ministry. Just like Joshua was with Moses from his youth, Timothy had been a part of Paul's ministry. He'd been at Paul's side, if you will. Now, although Paul's calling, like Moses's, was much different from his successor, Paul was still a pastor. Paul was a shepherd. He was a missionary. And it's clear from his final letter to Timothy, in his final letter, that he was preparing him to carry on the ministry in Paul's place. He starts off with these words, I charge you. Now, Paul needs Timothy to understand that this is important. This is important. He needs to know this charge. Not only because Paul was facing death, um, but because both of them one day would stand before God face to face in judgment, not of salvation. Christians, we don't stand in judgment of salvation because Jesus Christ has taken care of that. But we will stand face to face one day and answer for the lives that we have lived. The lives, our faithfulness in our work. 
how we served him. And that's what he's saying to Timothy. How are you serving? I charge you. So Timothy will answer to God for how he responds to Paul's commands. Now, what is this charge? It is to preach the word. Three awesome words. Preach the word. Everything Paul mentions here in verse 2, everything he mentioned is related to and connected with the word preach. A herald delivering a great message, if you will. In ancient times, a herald would deliver announcements to a group of people. Now, it was not his message, it was the ruler's message. But he was commissioned by the ruler to proclaim his message to his people in a loud and clear, direct voice so that all would hear what the ruler wanted communicated. That is what a herald did. All right? The herald did not have the privilege of, an, of negotiating what the message was. The herald did not have the privilege or liberties to rewrite or uh, compromise what the message was. No, the message was to be presented in a clear and direct manner so that all who heard understood what the ruler wanted communicated. And here we see Timothy being that herald to God's Word. Preach the Word. Now the ruler, of course, is God Himself. Timothy, hear this, Timothy would have the authority of heaven behind him as he delivered the message of God, as he was a herald to this message. So let's talk about the church for a second. Both the sinner and the saint need to hear God's Word. It is a sad state today, folks, but there are many churches who have replaced the Word of God with other things. I'm telling you this is a reality. You can see it on YouTube. I've watched many, many different churches. Other pastors have alerted me to this, and I've watched it, just so I know what's out there. There are many that have replaced God's Word. They have substituted what he's saying with other agendas. He's substituting what he has to say with other objectives. And it is a sad state, but I'm going to tell you, true believers know what the power of God can do. We know what the power of God's Word can do. And we know that nothing can take its place. And at this church, Grace Fellowship, it will never be replaced, ever. Because nothing can, re can replace God's Word. So, Paul tells Timothy, I need you to be ready in and out of season. Timothy, I need you to be diligent. I need you to be alert. I need you to seize every opportunity to preach the Word. Paul was a great example of this, folks. If you look at Paul's life, whether it be in the temple courts, whether it be in some new city or some town, whether he's on a sailing on a stormy sea, right, at home, or even in prison. And yes, many of these letters were written in prison. Paul preached the Word. No matter where he was, he preached the Word. See, Paul is telling Timothy that whether it is favorable or it is unfavorable, what? Three words. Preach the Word. Now with this Word, Timothy is to reprove, he's to rebuke, he's to exhort. That's what Scripture tells us. That is to correct or convict when needed. Um, that is to warn, to warn or show disapproval when needed. 
That is to encourage, to appeal to. So as you teach Timothy in patience, and remember, just like us, uh, Timothy would not always see immediate results. So Timothy, as you preach in patience, which is something I'm working on too. You guys know I'm broken and flawed, right? Everybody got that? Okay. I know you looked at that front picture and went, okay, wow, this guy's got it all together. No, I'm broken and flawed. I too have to remember, like Timothy, that this is done in patience. So he says, Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort in season and out of season, in favorable conditions as well as unfavorable. Be ready and preach. There's this old adage I've always liked. I want to share it with you. This old adage says, he should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. You see the balance there? There's balance there. See, if a pastor is going to reprove or rebuke, right, yet no remedy is provided for that, well, then that pastor or that spiritual leader has just added more burden to that person. And that doesn't work. Same token, if a spiritual leader is encouraging a person who needs to be rebuked, but is assisting them in their sin, well, that doesn't work. There must be balance in biblical preaching along with the practice of patience. And Paul goes on to say, you know what the reason for this is? The reason for preaching this word is because people will want their itching ears scratched. That's where we're at today, folks. The time is coming. The Bible says for the time is coming. I'll tell you it's here. You already know that. It's here. It's been here. It's been here. That is that people will not endure sound teaching. They are going to want to turn from that. They will want to turn from reproval. They're going to want to turn from rebuke. They're going to not take seriously the exhortations that the Bible teaches. They will not want a preacher to inflict more itching of the ears. Have you ever thought about it like that? I don't want my ears to itch any more than they already are. So please don't add to that itching. Don't tell me the things I'm doing wrong or how I'm living. Scratch my ears for me. Come on, give me one. And that's what we see happening today. They will not want a preacher that inflicts the ears. Instead, they're going to prefer a substitute. They're going to prefer to replace. They're going to refer... Uh, refer to uh, for you to forego i'd like you to forego this bible message the itching of ears i don't want the word of god spoken to me i don't want to be confronted with the word of god they prefer the substitute rather than the word of god is speaking to them they want teachers to tell them the things that they want to hear the bible says it in essence, it says it like this. It says, to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I have my own passions. Please confirm them. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't rebuke. Don't reprove. Don't exhort. Just agree with me. That's what a lot of churches are doing today. They are accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They want someone to confirm their sinful desires over the Word of God that confronts them. And that's why I want to read Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness 
suppress the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, in our world today, I'm talking about the whole spectrum. Suppression of the truth is everywhere. It's not just in a non-believer's heart. It's not in an atheist or agnostic's heart. It's everywhere. The suppression of the truth. Is it in the church? Yes, it is even in the church. And we have to stand against that. That's why I look to biblical leaders for my inspiration, for my teaching, for my motivation. I don't look to, like I said earlier, famous celebrities or coaches or, or politicians. or see, I don't look to that. I look for biblical relevance in teaching. But Timothy as a shepherd is to be sober-minded. He's to endure suffering. He's to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. What Paul is saying here is this. Timothy, you need to keep your head clear. You have got to keep your head clear in view of what is required of you. You also need to be willing to undergo hurt because it's coming, brother. You need to be ready for hurt. And you should put yourself to the task of proclaiming the gospel. So in all this, he says, you will fulfill your ministry. Meaning, you ready for this? The words fulfill your ministry is simple, the definition. It's meaning this, doing everything God wants you to do. Isn't that simple? Doing everything God wants you to do. That is fulfilling your ministry. So Joshua's ministry would not be the same as Moses's. And Timothy's ministry would not be exactly like Paul's. But in all four of these wonderful examples of shepherds, we find that each are important to God and His cause. And are they all shepherds? Absolutely they are. See, these leaders have both a vision and a mission for their particular ministries. And this kind of planning is important important to the church, folks. It's it's, it's very important. In fact, vision and mission statements are purpose-driven strategies that are invaluable to the teaching learning organization. There's a book I read by a man named Bredfeld, and he said that, that the church, you and I right now, are a teaching learning organization. And in his book, Great Leader, Great Teacher, this is a book about recovering the biblical vision for leadership. Okay, Bredfeld says this, in the process of growing a church, if the central task of teaching is lost, the church will have paid a steep price for its material successes. For in the end, the goal is not numerical growth, it's not numbers, but mature followers in Christ. And Paul says this, Paul puts it like this, in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now that author, Bredfeld, goes on to say this. He says that spiritual maturity, folks, that's our growth. It's not instantaneous. Of course it's not. And it's not easily measured. Do you want to know why? Because, folks, growth, maturity, it's slow. And it's hard work. And it's time-consuming. It is an investment. But is the measure of an effective church. So speaking to this effectiveness, I too, I have a mission and I have a vision for this church. You are installing me as a spiritual leader 
You are installing me as a pastor. You are installing me as an under-shepherd. And as I think about the very end of the text, Joshua is being commissioned. And as I think about the very end of the text in Second Timothy, Timothy, he's being told to fulfill his ministry. So I too am being commissioned to fill, fulfill my ministry in this church with God's flock. So I want to read Acts 20, 28 one more time so you understand where I'm coming from. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained by what? With His own blood. And when I think of this verse, I can't help but think of the Good Shepherd. We all know who the Good Shepherd is. Jesus Christ. In the book of John, it talks about the Good Shepherd. In fact, John 10, 11. John 10, 11 says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Folks, we know who it is who laid down His life for the sheep. It surely wasn't me. It wasn't any other spiritual leader. It was Jesus Christ. It's His flock. He obtained it. And that's how I am coming into this leadership role. When you're installing me, you've got to know that is in the front of my mind. It is God's flock that I am shepherding. It's not mine. And you've got to understand, I think most of you know me well enough to know that that is biblical truth. That's gospel truth. That's how I'm coming at it. So if you don't mind, really quick, I just want to share my mission and my vision statement. I'm not asking to change the bylaws. I'm not asking to change the website or the statement of faith. I want to share with you where my heart is in the vision for Grace Fellowship Church. My vision statement. We are a church grounded in God's Word, unified in purpose, unceasingly pursuing a closer relationship with Jesus Christ as we mature in the faith. Let me tell you what a, a vision is, vision statement. It's where a pastor or a leader sees what he wants for the future of the church. So where I want shepherd, uh, shepherding God's flock, where I want us, if I said, hey, come here, let's check out Grace Fellowship, I want to say we are a church grounded in God's Word, unified in purpose, unceasingly pursuing a closer relationship with Jesus Christ as we all together mature in the faith. But you know what? I, did, I went a step further. I have goals. Grace Fellowship has done something wonderful. We already had this installed. I have goals to achieve this vision. Let me start with life groups. Grace Kids, Strive, Ablaze, Connections, Word of Life. I want more, but life groups, Wednesday night Bible study, discipleship, Sunday morning worship, and of course, men and women's fellowship. These are the avenues that will help us reach that goal, that, that vision. Because if we embrace these avenues that the church is offering right now, if we embrace these, then guess what? We grow in God's Word. We become more grounded. We understand that the, the purpose God has for us individually and corporately. We're unified in that. Yes, we are growing closer, in a closer relationship every time we meet with, with our God and as we study. We're growing closer, and in all that, we mature in the faith, which is the end result, right? That's the goal. That's my vision for this church, but I also have a mission for this church. Here's my mission statement. Grace Fellowship Church. Our goal is to equip believers in the task of presenting the gospel-centered message of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our mission. To equip you and I, to equip believers in the task of presenting the gospel-centered message of Jesus. Now, let me explain the goals in reaching that. First, and it's very logical, 
teaching and discipling others so that they, in turn, will be raised up to teach and disciple others. Isn't that how it works? When you teach and disciple, they become teachers. They become people that can disciple. There's your first one. Actively participate in the life groups. Bible study, discipleship, Sunday morning worship, men and women's fellowship. Be active in those things that help us reach that vision. Be active. Participate. We don't do these things just to have them. They're not there just because of extra work. Oh, I wish I had more on my plate. No, they're there so that we grow and mature in the faith. The number three, an avenue besides teaching and discipling others, besides being actively participate, uh, participant in these things that the church offers, we need to missionally, missionally present the gospel of Christ locally and through the support of missions globally. Meaning, we have a community, we have work, we have school, we have our own homes and families. We can present the gospel-centered message of Jesus here, but we have an, uh, this church is huge into missions. We support a lot of missionaries. We're big on missions. We can support globally through this church. So missionally, locally, and through support globally. These are the avenues to reach that wonderful mission statement of equipping believers in the task of presenting the gospel-centered message of Jesus. Now, as I close, pastor, staff, elders, deacons, our teachers, our trustees, members of Grace Fellowship Church, and there's some people here today from other fine churches. Thank you for your presence here. Um, so I'm going to just say members of the body of Christ. We have got to be unified in both the vision and mission of the church, teaching sound biblical doctrine and instilling core Christian values so that we are prepared, so that we are equipped, so that we are encouraged to live out lives that reveal Jesus Christ. And folks, this is the end result for me. This is the end result of shepherding God's flock. You and I living lives that reveal Jesus Christ. This is how I want to view leadership for this church. This is how I want to um, move forward with Grace Fellowship, with that mission and with that vision. And with that, folks, I'm going to invite our chair elder, Ken Southern, to come up.